G'day mate, welcome along to episode 60 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. In today's episode, I sit down with Nick Taylor and we wrap up the Heart Rate Training Zone series that we've been doing over the last few episodes of the podcast. And in this episode, we answer a whole bunch of listener questions around heart rate and around training zones. So let's get into it. Welcome to the Exponential Performance Podcast. Join sports scientist and performance coach Maddie Graham to find out how to train smarter and maximize your performance no matter who you are. G'day mate, welcome to episode 60 of the Exponential Performance Podcast. It is so good to have you here. It's been a while since we last uh, sat down together and recorded an episode. We've had uh, Dougal's episode on last one, episode 59, uh, and we've got a couple more interview-type podcasts coming up. But for tonight, we are going to be tackling some listener Q&A around the heart rate training zones, wrapping up that series that we've been doing over the last few weeks. So, Nick Taylor, welcome. How you doing, mate? I am good, thank you. I am good. Uh, as we, we just talked about uh, <clears throat> day one of my, my new training plan, um, so I'm starting starting a 12-week base building plan, uh, then some specific work ahead of a, a race called Fuck It 100, uh, which is 100Ks of mostly single-track mountain biking in the Redwoods Forest of Rotorua. So I am fizzing about that. Uh, not so awesome. fizzing about the fact that all the tracks in Dunedin now are soaking wet because it's been raining for about three days straight. Uh, but started off tonight with some, some strength testing back in the gym, so loving being back in the in the gym, throwing some tin around. Um, even got my, my Under Armour hoodie on just to prove that I'm a, a real strength athlete all of a sudden. Oh, it's back <laughs> on the program. I love it. Yeah. Uh, but more important news, there's been a big announcement. Uh, Nick Taylor, sorry, ladies uh, and gentlemen. Nick Taylor's officially off the market. He may pop the big question to his... Uh, now, fiance, talk us through it. I did, yes. Um, so it was a, well, it'd be two weeks ago now. Um, we sort of took a wee bit of a drive. No, a week ago. Oh, a week and a half ago. I uh, took a drive um, to a place called Danzy's Pass, uh, which is about an hour and a half away from Dunedin here. Uh, nice mountain range, uh, gravel road. Uh, drove up to the top, um, found, a, found a nice rock to, to pull up on and, and have a, a can of cider. Um, and turned around and there I was down on one knee um, asking her to marry me. So complete surprise for her, which was cool. That was always my aim was to make sure it was a surprise. Um, and then we, we popped, down the, popped down the hill to the Danzies Pass Hotel for a lovely night of eating and sitting by the fire, which was stunning. Nice. Have, by chance, you might not have. Uh, have you had the hot chips from Danzies Pass Hotel? I have. Yes. So potentially the nicest hot chips in the world, or am I wrong? Yeah, no, I would pretty much, yeah, go as far as to say as they're the best ones I've had. Um, yep. Pretty good beer and some, some really good hot chips, which is a, a pretty formidable combo, a combo for a backcountry hotel. Absolutely. Well, congratulations, mate. And um, yeah, it's exciting times. Mm. So without further chit-chat, because uh, no one wants to know what's going on in our lives. They are here for the intel on how to train smarter. So should we crack into these questions that we've got? Sounds good to me. Um, I will start by asking you this one. If I am doing AT, which I'm assuming is anaerobic threshold, at zone 4, 150 to 160 beats for, for this person, for two minutes, do I have to reach the zone first and then start the two minutes? Or do I start the two minutes from when I start the two minutes? Yeah, good question, this one. Um, and it's, it's definitely point number one I'd make on this is that the time starts from when you hit start on your watch. So at the start of the interval, if it's two minutes, you're starting right from now. You're not waiting until your heart rate gets into the correct zone or the zone that you're after before you start your watch. So... The time starts at zero. Now, as you've found, obviously there's a lag with your heart rate. Your heart rate lags behind what's happening physiologically in your body, 
because your heart rate responds to the change in that physiological environment within your body. So heart rate increases because your muscles are working harder and they need more blood. Your heart rate doesn't increase and then make your muscles work harder, if that makes sense. So there is that lag and we need to be aware of it, but we're not going to start our interval once our heart rate gets into the zone because we are already working at, well, it's in this case, anaerobically in our zone four effort right from the start, even though our heart rate doesn't show it. It's a little bit off the pace. If you're on a bike and you're using a power meter, you'll notice that instantly your power comes up to your required training zone, but your heart rate's lagging a little bit. And that's that difference between power, which is a, a direct uh, indicator of what's happening in your body. We're working this hard right from the word go, whereas heart rate is an indirect measure of what the work uh, of the work that you were doing. So interval starts as soon as it starts. Don't wait for it. Uh, there is that lag. You need to be aware of it. The third point that I'd uh, talk about here is that when you start off, if you're using heart rate to pace yourself, start at your perceived intensity for zone four. As you're getting used to how hard zone four feels, you'll be able to feel it pretty accurately over time. So start off pushing into that intensity that you think is zone four, and then your heart rate will come up as you start to get into the zone and, uh, and reach that steady state around zone four. Then you'll be able to correct up or down with that heart rate once it gets up to speed. And it is a little bit of a downfall, I guess, of heart rate is that sometimes that response time. The fourth thing I'd say is that if you are doing threshold work at looking at developing that anaerobic threshold, you probably want to push your intervals out a little bit more than that two-minute mark. Two minutes is not really giving you much accumulative time in that anaerobic threshold. It's not giving you much time to get into that zone to accumulate um, you know, that lactate within the system to drive the adaptations that we're after. So they're a little bit on the short side for an anaerobic threshold interval as they are at two minutes. But what I'd suggest is push that out a bit kind of from that four-minute mark onwards depending on uh, what specifically you are training for. So those would be my five, uh, sorry, my four key points for uh, that question. Nick, do you have anything else you want to chuck into that? Uh, the only thing I'd probably add is around, I guess, zone four and then the switch to zone five training. Generally, you can feel that point when you're like, I'm now working almost as maximally as I can. Um, and you know that you can only continue this for another 30 seconds, maybe a minute. So if you're trying to get a good feel for zone four at the start of your interval before the heart rate comes up, that can be a good measure to kind of be making sure you're pushing, thinking, right, I could sustain this for, for five, ten minutes mm -hmm. if I had to, not in 30 seconds I'm about to blow up. So that can give you a bit of a guide just while your heart rate kind of comes up and, and plateaus out, um, and then you can be right, right, I come in the, in the right zone and away we go. Yeah, fantastic. I think as well, it's always a little bit easier uh, at the start than you would anticipate it in terms of hold back a little bit at the start because it's easier to then push your heart rate up if you're a little bit bit low. But if you go out of the gates really hard and let's say your interval six minutes and you get to two minutes and you're way off the charts in zone five now, um, it's quite hard to pull it back and still maintain a good intensity because you've already crossed that sort of uh, line of no return, if you like. So start off a little bit easy, ease into it, find that pace, settle into it, and then adjust accordingly. But um, hopefully that helps answer your question. Question number two, this is for you, Mr. Taylor. This person's been on the keto diet for six months now, and they've noticed all the benefits mentioned around the keto diet. However, their problem is that they have started the outdoor cycling season, and for their first rides, they can confirm that above 75 to 80% of their max heart rate, the fat oxidation ends. And this is because they're feeling this strange feeling where they're pushing really hard, but they're still at a slow or a low speed and feeling what they call as hopeless 
I know the feeling well. Um, so it's, it's, it's clear to them that no carbs mean no peak speed. But I guess their question is, is when is it convenient to fill up in, with carbs? Uh, is it before the ride, during? Their usual ride lasts around about five to six hours. Um, and they've tried some branch chain amino acids. Uh, and that seemed to help a little bit after three hours. Um, so this is from one of our listeners in Italy. So that's hmm. quite a long question. Hopefully you caught it, Nick, because I'm not too sure where I was at. <laughs> I did. I mean, uh, the the question is asked, I guess, in a way that makes sense. So the, I've been on keto, which is obviously very low carb. Um, probably, I suspect, in the realm of less than 50 grams of net carbs, if not less than 20. Um, so their muscle glycogen levels uh, will have taken in a, a hit to start with, but been on that diet for six months, they probably would have come to a point where their body is supplying muscle glycogen um, from other sources, so making it from the fats, but also from, from their proteins. So without carbohydrate, you're never going to be able to work in your maximal intensity. Um, as we've learned over the past couple of months now, that along that spectrum of zone training, so one to five, um, your fat oxidation levels will sort of rise into zone two, a little bit into zone three, and then start to curve off zone top zone three, four, and then into five. You're pretty much not using any fat. Um, I'd never go as far to say 100% just carbohydrate, but at, at the top end, in those kind of 30-second sprints, you're pretty much just reliant on, on carbohydrates. So uh, I don't, no surprises, I guess, that they're feeling sluggish um, at the top end. Uh, what I would say is that you can certainly utilise carbohydrate fueling for exercise um, when you're on a keto diet, and it doesn't have an effect necessarily on your insulin levels, uh, which is one of the main reasons people go down this low-carb keto diet is to, to really control their blood sugars and their insulin. Uh, from an insulin resist resistance, diabetes, um, and so forth, sort of flow on. So during exercise, our insulin response is is somewhat blunted. Um, so while taking on board carbohydrate, let's say, in the form of a gel, because it's probably the most purest, our body's utilizing that, funneling it into the muscles and the blood, and it's been used for energy. And that's perfect. If we had that gel like we are, like Maddie and I now, sitting around, the body's going to rise up with insulin to store that into our muscles to be used for uh, for later um, exercise. So without that component, we don't have to worry about uh, the insulin response during exercise. So you can get away with, with some carbohydrate. So I'd suggest maybe trying a small kind of carbohydrate snack in that kind of 20, 20 minute before riding uh, window. Um, Especially for those big five to six hour rides, you're going to get to a point where you're going to need some. Or on the flip side, if you're doing interval sessions as well, um, you know, your zone four intervals for threshold, you're going to need some sort of carbohydrate going in. So you could also use a sort of a 10, 15 gram carbohydrate snack during those rides um, or before the intervals, just to give your body something to kind of fuel up, um, do your intervals, and you haven't sort of altered your, your daily intake, so to speak. Um, your BCAAs will be helping, um, mainly because BCAAs are broken down in the body and converted to glucose when needed. Um, now, it's not always the best option to do that. It doesn't happen quite as, as nicely as we would like, but it is going to preserve your muscles from being broken down in those five to six hour long rides. Um, so they're good, but a carbohydrate snack, a gel, um, a couple of jet planes, or something is going to be a better option um, in some of those situations where you need that extra bit of punch. Um, and road cycling, if it is road cycling that you're uh, doing, um, or even mountain biking, there's a lot of high-intensity pinches that happen, whether it be a surge in the bunch, sprint to the finish, um, you know, you climbing a wee hill, trying to, trying to get to a, a section of single track ahead of people. So you need that kind of fiery um, energy. In the training, it's not as... Um, important, but a lot of keto athletes will train low in terms of low carbohydrate and then race high. So they basically stack in the carbohydrate, they do the gels, they do everything they would do in the past, come race day, so they're kind of utilizing the, the sugars available. 
Mm. That was probably quite a long-winded answer as well for the long question. For the long question. Um, I'll just chuck a couple of other things in there because I think it's important as well. It all depends, I guess, on the person's goals as well. Eh? Like, um, If you're looking at improving your performance, then you need to need to fuel for that. And you know, the concept of kind of periodized nutrition is something that's becoming more and more mainstream. Something that I've used quite a lot in the in the past is, you know, during that base phase when you're looking at developing that that fat oxidation, then using you know lower carbohydrate uh, nutrition to help aid that as well. So it becomes not only just what you're eating. This is what this is how I eat all the time. Becomes during my base phase when I do this type of training, I'm going to supplement it with this type of fueling, and then when it comes as you pointed out into those more important speed phases where you're really getting ready to race and the intensity of your training goes up, your fueling needs to reflect that as well if you're looking at improving your performance uh, maximally. There's no point really doing high-intensity intervals if you're not fueling them properly because otherwise they'll just become low-intensity intervals because you don't have the fuel to that you know to require to reach that required intensity so if your goal is performance there really needs to be some thought i think put into how to best fuel for um the the training uh, adaptations you're looking for if it's not uh for performance and it's just because for for health for fitness for recreation for fun and you want to keep eating keto it's not as important doesn't really matter if you're not reaching those uh, critical training intensities uh, at, at specific times. The final thing I was going to say was if you are going to be going down the train low, race high sort of method in terms of carbohydrate, it's really important that you try some of this high carbohydrate uh, during your training at some stage as well. Last thing you want to do is go into a race not used to you know consuming huge amounts of carbohydrate in terms of gels uh, drinks bars whatever form you're getting them in and then your gut which hasn't had much carbohydrate at all uh, in your preparation is probably going to have a few issues i would imagine so definitely if you're going to take that approach make sure you try at least some of that nutrition in in training mm. Yeah, and awesome. I would also, I guess, just point out there too is, is a lot of athletes that will go keto for periods of time, but like Maddie said, with that mm. periodization, um, there, there's not a lot of them that will remain on it for years at a time. Um, even some of the, the massive advocates for it in the early stages have kind of come out and said they do cycle on and off. Um, so they might go into a keto sort of state for two or three weeks and then have a, a sort of a refeed or a recovery week um, and then repeat that cycle based around their training. So keep that in mind as well. Um, but like Maddie said, if, if your goal isn't performance uh, and, and you want to keep eating that way, then by all means, um, there are some, some strategies that might help with some of that high-intensity work. This is for you. Hi, I've been listening to some of your podcasts and I like the new series of Zones. Well, thank you very much. I was wondering that was, Nick, that was Nick's idea, by the way. So well done, Nick. I'll take it. I was wondering what the calorie burn difference is between each zone, if there is any. Um, and this has come to us from Josh. So thanks, Josh. Awesome. So uh, a calorie, I guess a calorie is a good thing to sort of nail down before we go too much further, because I think calories are kind of confusing to to some people. But a calorie is just literally a unit of energy in terms of how much energy do you use and I'm pretty sure a calorie I don't have the definition right in front of me but it's the amount of energy required to heat a litre of water by one degree I can't remember if it's a litre of water or like a milliliter of water but it's how to heat and actually really interesting it comes from the days of steam engines and this is how they would measure energy output in steam engines when they're shoveling coal into the trains uh, and having to heat the water to drive the, the steam engines forward that um, they would work out how many calories they're going to need for these engines to complete a set amount of work. 
kilojoules are, are also used as a different measure of energy expenditure as well. So calories are quite predominant within uh, North America, just as uh, pounds and miles are in other units of measurements, weight and distance. And then in a lot of other countries, we use kilojoules, which is just a, simply a different way of measuring energy expenditure. But we also use kilometers and um, other very sensible units of measurement <laughs> rather than feet and inches and, and, and that sort of jazz. Yep. So what burns more calories, zone one or zone five? Well, as you go through the zones and you're working harder, you burn more energy. And it's pretty pretty incremental from there. There's no specific uh, numbers in terms of zone one burns this many calories per hour because it's different for everybody in terms of their relative uh, intensities that they're working. But as you go through the zones, they're all going to burn more energy the harder you are exercising. So I imagine this potentially comes from like a weight loss perspective. They want to know how to lose or how to burn the most energy. And this is why uh, repeated high intensity intervals or high intensity interval training is quite a popular method now within the weight loss industry because you can do short bursts at higher intensities. And although you'll burn less energy in the actual session because the time spent is shorter, there's the afterburn effect where you're uh, metabolizing more calories throughout the day because your metabolism is still cranking away from all the hard work that you've been doing. And we talked about that a little bit way back in another episode about EPOC or excessive post-exercise oxygen consumption. Now there is a difference when it comes to how much fat you metabolize uh, in each training zone. In the lower training zones, you're going to metabolize a higher proportion of fat uh, compared to carbohydrate. So the easier you exercise, the more reliant on fat you are. Now the fitness industry grabbed hold of this a uh, number of years ago, and they came up with the fat burning zone. And they plastered it on all their exercise equipment. You'll see it in the gym, on the treadmills, on the ellipticals, on the bikes, whatever it might be. There's usually a wee graph and there's the fat burning zone. And the idea that they were selling was if you work in this intensity, which tended to be around zone two, you're gonna burn fat. And it is correct, you are gonna burn more fat as a fuel, but if you're looking at losing weight, it's a little bit misleading, because if you exercise harder, you just burn more energy overall, and the burning of more energy overall is what contributes more to weight loss rather than just fat oxidation. So be aware of that as well. Nick, do you have anything else to add to that conversation? Uh, probably the only thing, and I, I think you might have briefly mentioned it in a way, but obviously you get more, more calories burned or more energy expended in zone five than you do in zone one. But you can't exercise for many hours in zone five at once. Um, you know, you could go, let's say, five to six hours in zone one or zone two quite happily, uh, and maybe, you know, two or three minutes in zone five. Uh, so the, the relative difference in, in energy expenditure is needs to be considered when you're looking at the, the time you can spend in each zone. So that's where, I guess, high-intensity interval training has kind of come into the foray, a bit like Maddie said, you know, you're going to get up into that zone come back, get up into that zone, come back. So you can do repetitive time in that zone five, high intensity or zone four, uh, without continuously burning yourself out in one go. Yeah, excellent. Uh, hopefully that makes sense. And Josh, who answered the asked the question, Hopefully it makes sense and answers your question to some degree. Uh, yeah, so if you are looking at losing weight or just burning energy because you've got a little bit of excess energy hanging around, combination of aerobic training, some high-intensity interval training, and some resistance training. If you tick all those three boxes, it's going to go a long way uh, to doing the job for you. Next question. I'm not even going to ask you this one. We have got Dan 
all the way from Wyoming to ask this question. Here it is. Dan, take it away. Hey, Maddie, this is uh, Dan Hughes in Riverton, Wyoming in the U.S. Hey, I just wanted to let you know I got a lot out of your, uh, your, your zones, heart rate zones. But my question is, um, so in your long distance, like uh, if you're going to be in the saddle for 10 hours, you're saying that uh, I should stay in zone two on a lot of the flats and stuff like that. And then on when it comes on the inclines, I should go into, you know, possibly up to four, um, uh, heartbreak four. Just wanted to clarify that. Thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to your um, free book. Thank you. Well, Dan, thanks for your question, mate. I hope you enjoyed the Performance Temple uh, ebook that I sent through to you. Just remember, if you do send in a voice question for the podcast uh, as a way of saying thank you for your uh, effort of sending that in, I will send you uh, a free copy of the Performance Temple Handbook series, which is all of the different handbooks, psychology, function, nutrition, and recovery um, to go along with with that so you can learn from that all you have to do is go over to exponential performance coaching slash ask and send us in a voice question but nick can you help dan out here yeah well firstly dan 10 hours in the saddle is a mammoth effort so well done on on just doing that um you're a bigger man than i am in that respect but essentially as a as a rough guide that would be a, a good plan to stick to um obviously going up an incline your heart rate is naturally going to increase and if, I mean, if this 10-hour ride is a race, um, then that's probably not a bad option to keep yourself in a, a lower heart rate, whether it be zone 2 or zone 3 on the flat, um, and then zone 4 on the hills. But keeping in mind that as soon as you kind of move from that kind of mid-zone 3 up to zone 4, you're going to be, um, I guess, consuming a lot more carbohydrate because your body is working harder but you're also going to be increasing your lactic acid production. Now, at some point, you're going to get to a point where that lactic acid production is sort of more than what your body can clear, and you're going to start to get that slightly more heavier burn in, in the legs. Um, and if you continue to work in that kind of intensity, especially towards the top end of zone four, you're going to run into some problems with having to stop or having to, you know, you get cramps, uh, your body's kind of screaming at you to, to slow down. So if you can utilise some... Um, you know, 10 to 20 minute blocks of zone four on a hill that's going to give you an advantage over other riders and have the ability to then come back down zone two, zone three on the downhill on the flat, um, then that's not a bad plan. Um, conveniently, if you can stay in zone three on some of the hills as well, then you're going to just be able to prolong how long you can keep going at a higher pace for, um, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Yes, yes, it does for sure. And I guess it comes back down to like um, what the 10 hours is for. If your 10 hours is a, a training ride, which is a long training ride, but sometimes you just got to do these things, um, then, yeah, riding in zone two, you're going to get through that 10 hours pretty comfortably. If it's a race, uh, and depending on your goals for that race, um, again, getting a good pacing strategy in place uh, is important. And again, with looking at a pacing strategy for a race, like Nick mentioned to, pushing harder at certain times may be more uh, beneficial than others. Rather than just frivolously burning away all of your energy at the start of a 10-hour ride, you might want to save some more for, for later in the piece, where it maybe means a little bit more. Or alternatively, at the start, you might want to be pushing hard at the start so that you are able to make a certain bunch or stay with a certain group. Often at the start, the pace is really hot, but then it settles down again. So thinking exactly why you're doing what you're doing is really important as well. I'd never say just go and ride in zone two all the time if you're doing a 10-hour ride because there are plenty of times during a 10-hour ride you wouldn't necessarily... You'd probably want to be in zone two, but not necessarily need to be in zone two. If you're doing, you know, a long uh, multi-lap uh, mountain bike event, uh, for the first couple of hours, you know, you might be pushing the pace really, really hard, 
and then settle into uh, more of a sustained effort through the middle few hours before trying to lift the intensity at the end. Even though you might not be able to lift the intensity by much, um, that's often where, where it often counts as well. So just depending on what you're doing, but you've got the general idea. If you're pacing yourself and you want to keep things aerobic, zone two is where it's at. It's naturally, your heart rate's naturally going to come up on those hills, but we want to keep that under wraps, especially if you're doing a long, long ride like a 10-hour ordeal. Mm-hmm. And don't forget about, I guess, so cardiac drift is the, the term, but across 10 hours, zone two, at, you know, in the first hour is going to feel a lot different to zone two in the final few hours. Um, and so to keep your heart rate in zone two, you're going to have to work work slower essentially you're going to have to slow down the pace because your heart rate is going to naturally come up as your body is getting tired and fatigued so it might be that you're right okay no it's a 10 hour um, race or you know the distance okay I've got 20 k's to go so I can sort of keep pushing harder Um, so knowing what you're in for if if it is a a racing setting um, can certainly help negate a cardiac drift situation you might be like actually I'm in zone three but that's okay because I know I've got an hour to go and I can sustain that for the next hour. Excellent. Next question. Just a quick one. Uh, hope you or someone else can enlighten me. So hopefully Maddie can. You VO2 might be able to help on this one, Nick. <laughs> VO2 max. So those max efforts that you, won't you be working anaerobically is, is kind of got a question mark here. So don't we have to keep our heart rate to a certain level? 60%, for example, to stay aerobic for VO2. So what I'm hearing is this person's a little bit confused around what VO2 max is and, and how to train for it when VO2 max is considered to be an aerobic measure. But we, in the in the Zone 5 session, talked about working at 100% plus of your lactic threshold heart rate to increase VO2 max, which is an anaerobic interval. Yeah, it's a it's a confusing one, isn't it? It's um, mm. and I think the terminology around it, people struggle to get their heads around it. So, if we think of what VO two max actually means, it's the maximal rate that your body can utilize oxygen. So it's the maximal rate your body can take in and use oxygen. That in itself, I think, confuses people because they think, well, that's aerobic, so. And we use that term because it is a, a measure of aerobic capacity, the maximal uh, volume that you can take in and use. Then what makes it really confusing is anaerobic threshold or lactate threshold, which happens before you get to your VO2 max. And anaerobic threshold, people think, well, as soon as we cross our anaerobic threshold, everything's anaerobic. Everything's not anaerobic when we cross our anaerobic threshold. It just becomes the predominant energy system that's used or uh, uh, the, contrib- uh, the contribution of anaerobic energy is, is turned up. So if we go back to our analogy of our pots sitting on a stove and we're changing the gas dials to the amount of gas that's going to each. When we're down in zone two, our pot that's boiling is pretty much all aerobic energy. The anaerobic is uh, little gas knobs turn right down, and that pot's just simmering away. As we turn up the aerobic dial, the pot starts to boil, and that's kind of zone two. We're getting a really big aerobic impulse. As we go through zone three, we start to dial up both of them sort of almost equally. We've got a large aerobic component, a large anaerobic component. Once we cross over that anaerobic threshold, we really start to turn up that anaerobic energy production. But remember, that aerobic energy production is still right up there as well. And it, we don't finish turning that anaerobic, or sorry, that aerobic dial to max for still quite a while until we get to VO2 max. Once we get to VO2 max, that knob can't go any higher, it's tapped out, there's maximal gas going to it, but we've still got that anaerobic knob, that can still go more. So the difference between anaerobic threshold 
and what that actually means. It doesn't mean that anaerobic threshold, that the knobs turn to max. It just means that we're starting to turn that into the grid a little bit more. So understanding that difference between what VO2 max and anaerobic threshold actually mean. And there's something that we talk about, not much when it comes to training zones, but that's our aerobic threshold, our aerobic threshold. And that's right down in zone two. And our aerobic threshold is when we first get a little bit of an increase in lactate when we're doing a lactate test. It's not talked about too much, but that's where our aerobic system is working really, really efficiently. And after that point, we start to notice a little bit more anaerobic energy system creeping in there. So remember that it's never one system or the other. It's a mixture of them, and both of them vary determining on how hard you're exercising and what uh, one that you, you need to get energy from. Just because we're over our anaerobic threshold doesn't mean everything's aerobic all of a sudden. It just means that we're starting to use a lot more anaerobic energy predominantly. That maximal oxygen consumption, that aerobic dial, still isn't up to max. That comes very soon after. Nick, did that make any sense at all? It did. And I'm not even going to bother adding anything to that because I feel like I'm going to add the same stuff in a slightly different way and that's just going to confuse the picture again. We so, talked about uh, it in what? episode 58 mm. as well, didn't we, in zone 5, yeah. I'm pretty yeah, sure. And the and that pot analogy, I think, is the best way to, to conceive it in your mind uh, when you're looking at those different anaerobic, uh, sorry, aerobic threshold, anaerobic threshold. VO2 max, then your aerobic kind of capacity sits on top of that again. Yep. Yeah. All but right. Yeah, let us know if that hasn't hit the mark and we'll, we'll see if we can do a whiteboard session on it maybe. Hopefully that's done it for you. If not, let us know. We will do our best to answer it in the future. Next question. This is for you, Nick. This person has been unable to find info on weekly frequency of lactate training so I'm thinking this is like anaerobic threshold type training is there a limit or can this be done based on an athlete's body condition I'd love to know if there's a benefit in having the body train above this threshold four plus times a week so how much anaerobic threshold training can we do within the week well, I guess as some of the question indicates, that there is a bit of art in terms of planning sessions for an athlete. Um, you know, what I can handle is different to what Maddie can handle, is different to what I can handle in three weeks' time in my training. It's always evolving, it's always changing depending on what else you're up to um, and what uh, type of exercise you're doing. Um, but one thing I would say, I mean, lactate training you know, sort of above this or around the anaerobic threshold mark is probably the most beneficial training for an aerobic event you can do. If you can increase your anaerobic threshold, you're going to have a better performance. So if it was able, if you're able to train at that threshold, you know, four, six, eight times a week, everybody would be um, because that would be the best bang for your buck. We wouldn't be out there slaving away for, for six to ten hours um, in a training session. Um, to get that aerobic base and then add on the, the lactate or the an anaerobic threshold component on top. Um, and the reason for that is the sessions in, you know, in that zone four or zone five are very taxing on the system. They place a lot of stress on the body and you create a lot of byproducts like lactic acid, which are going to sit around in the muscles and cause all sorts of things to, to go on that limit how many times we can do them. Um, you know, if you do one on a Monday night, and you can do another one on a Tuesday night, and you can do another one on the Wednesday night, I would have a guess that the Monday session wasn't hard enough to elicit an actual training response. Um, Tuesday's one might have been, um, and then Wednesday's one you might have hit the mark, and that's why you couldn't do one on the Thursday. So I tend to, to suggest about two sessions a week is 
ideal. Um, and again, maybe spaced, you know, Tuesday and a Thursday or a Tuesday and a Saturday. So you've got a couple of days of light exercise, um, aerobic and sort of endurance training in between times. Um, but, but it will depend on what your sport is. If you're a sprinter, then you don't need the same aerobic training time as an uh, endurance cyclist, so to speak. Um, so, yes, if you can do more than two, that's great. Um, but I would warn about doing more than two regularly in your weekly sessions um, and trying to make sure that those two or three that you're doing are really specific and you're hitting the mark with your training interval sort of uh, measure. Yeah. I think there's a couple of other things in terms of if you think about uh, polarized, the, the polarised training model, which uh, are among an, are other things, the, the main philosophy around polarised training, and we should cover this more in, a, in another episode mm-hmm. altogether, but the idea there is uh, 80-20. So 80% of the training that you do should be aerobic and 20% uh, of your training should be anaerobic or that harder type training. So with that in mind, if you think about how many hours you've got during your training week or how many sessions you do, try and split that 80% aerobic, 20% anaerobic potentially. The other caveats I'd give with that, if you're not following a polarised training uh, approach, which a lot of people aren't, um, it becomes very individual for you. And you even know that that's individual because you, you wrote it in the question there. You've got the sneaking suspicion that uh, some people are, are slightly different from other people depending on how well they're trained. Also to that, um, it's very season-specific as well. In your aerobic base phase, there should almost be no training around that anaerobic threshold mark. It should be primarily aerobic moving through into our more speed orientated phases where we're working on developing our anaerobic threshold and vo2 max that's when we're going to start to see more of this training taking place the other uh, thing i'd i'd suggest or talk about is potentially something that's a little bit um a little bit more high level than this than this question is that if an athlete is doing uh, like a time crunch training approach. Now, I've got athletes that I'm working with at the moment, uh, and they come to me whenever they've got a short build-up for an event, uh, sort of like 10 weeks. They usually come in with a really good base, and they want to get uh, race-ready within that 10 weeks. And we've been working together for a long time, and I know that I can sort of load them up with quite high-intensity training, uh, during the week because they, they work quite busy uh, and they've got families. So we do quite a lot of high-intensity training during the week, get in some longer sessions in the in the weekend. But that's a very specific case as well. Definitely comes back to that rest and recovery between sessions. And Nick's example of a Monday, Wednesday, uh, Monday Tuesday, Wednesday session, I'd, I'd suggest go out and try it. What you'll find is that if you go really hard on Monday, you probably shouldn't be able to do the Tuesday session, as Nick said. If you can get through it, what you'll probably find is that the quality is really far down. If you if you if the quality drops out of your session, there's probably not much point doing the session. So there's that balance between, yeah, I can do six sessions a week of uh, zone four training. You know, who said I can't just watch me? What's probably going to happen is the quality's not going to be there. You're going to start to get overly tired, and then the quality of your sessions are going to completely drop away. If you try and keep that up for more than a week, yeah, the second week's going to probably turn to disaster. And depending on what mode you're training, whether it be running or cycling or swimming, uh, then you're probably going to start to run into a few uh, overuse injury-type issues as well um, as, as that drags on. But by all means... Have an experiment with your body. Um, see how much you can handle. The key thing is, as I've come back to it a couple of times in this week's podcast, is think about what you're trying to achieve. What are your goals? I think a lot of people, if you're just using this type of training for fitness and for health, then you almost need to be smarter about how you're using it compared to an 
athlete because an athlete has uh, a periodized plan on when this stuff is going to slot in, whereas people that are coming to it for fitness or for health just say, ooh, that's shiny, that's new, I'm just going to do that from now on. And you see a lot of people burnt out because they go into a CrossFit class in the morning, spin class at lunchtime, and another CrossFit class in the afternoon. And that's all the same type of really high-intensity training. Their stress hormones are through the roof. They don't get a balance. Uh, they don't get a chance to balance them out because they don't go out and do easy active recovery. It's either they're working maximally or, or they're not. And they think that, uh, well, if, if three days a week's good, well, then four or five must be better as well. So I just caution that a little bit as well. Um, and if in doubt, err on the side of caution. So that must move us along to a question for you, Mr. Graham. I have a question that's come through here about recovery intervals. Um, and how low should their heart rate percentage of maximum heart rate be at the end of the recovery interval? So the example that I've given, if they are jogging, at the end of their interval, their heart rate drops to about 80% of max heart rate. Am I doing it right, or should I drop my heart rate lower? Nice, good question. I think the key thing here is, we again, we want to know what we're trying to do for, or what we're trying to get out of the interval set. Now, 80% of maximum heart rate is still quite high. Is that Nick, is it about zone three? Is that about right? Yeah, I think it's approximately zone three. Yeah, so it's still, it's still quite high. If you're looking at driving your heart rate up into that sort of zone five to develop that uh, VO2 max type interval, then you really want to focus on getting your heart rate down low during the recovery. And this is because we want to minimize the amount of lactate uh, that's building up in our system. And if we're still exercising around that zone three intensity, then we're not able to get rid of that lactate because our anaerobic energy system is still dialed up quite a lot in the recovery phase. So you want to dial that back a little bit more. Now for zone four intervals, if you're pushing up into zone four, then with our recovery intervals there, we're not too worried if there's still a little bit of lactate hanging around because the whole idea of the session is to accumulate lactate uh, over the session to give the body that, that, uh, that stimulus to adapt to it. So would it be okay to be at about 80% of your heart rate max during a recovery interval for a zone four say? It depends on whether or not you can then back up that previous interval with another one at the same intensity and hold the quality. So if you can, that's all good. Push it hard, hold that intensity, and, you know, happy days. If you find that after two or three intervals you're not able to complete the set or you find that the uh, quality of them starts to drop if you're monitoring power, um, or if you can just look at your speed or pace, if you're not able to hold on to that intensity that you're after, not just heart rate, because heart rate will go up even though your speed's going down uh, a lot of the time. So if you're working really hard, you think your heart rate's in the zone, that's all good. But if your speed, your pace, or your power is dropping away because you're not actually putting out that much work anymore, then the intervals aren't actually having you know the the specific uh, outcome that we're after I would always recommend that you want your heart rate down in at least zone two during those recovery phases to really give your body an ability to clear lactate to neuromuscularly freshen up and to get ready for the for the next one so you can get the quality you get the training adaptation that you're after during the interval. The work that's done during the interval is where we get our adaptation from. If we're pushing harder in training, sorry, if we're pushing harder in recovery, that doesn't give you any more benefit. All it does is take away from the session. So I'd suggest dial it back a little bit because I suspect 
just a little bit of a hunch that the quality of your intervals will probably be dropping if you're in zone three for that recovery. If it's not, excellent, keep doing it. But I suspect it probably the quality starts to deteriorate a little bit just because that recovery phase is not really a recovery phase at zone three. It's like a, a partial recovery. There are some intervals um, that I will get athletes to do where we're looking at maximal lactate accumulation where we'd go uh, into that zone three, riding quite hard, and then up into zone four, back down into zone three, up into zone four, back down into zone three, up into zone four, back into zone three. His time spent in zone four is quite limited, but what it's about is just the, um, producing a heap of lactate. They suck in a big way, um, but they're really good for those races where you're having to hold quite a high intensity, such as a road race, um, in cycling, uh, and then have little surges and then back them off. And little surges teaches the body to deal with lactate a little bit better. But on the whole, I would probably suggest that you need to dial things back a little bit and um, take those recovery periods a little bit easier. Next question. This is about low slash high heart rates with overtraining and fatigue. Um, I did a video of this um, over on YouTube, and the people asked, Do, does this apply to beginners as well, or is it just fit people or only athletes, for example? I monitor my client's heart rate, so this person must be a personal trainer or a coach or something like that, uh, and they feel tired. So they feel like they're working hard, an RPE or a rating of perceived exertion of 8, but their heart rate is low. What is your opinion on that? Is it just for fit people uh, or does it apply to everybody? High RPE but low heart rate. What's going on here? Well, I guess, I mean, the, high, the low high heart rates with overtraining will apply to anybody who is overtrained. Um, it is easier, I guess, for a beginner to be overtrained, especially by a a personal trainer or a coach if you're just trying to load them up and push, push, push just to find a breaking point as well almost. Um, you're going to notice that they're going to get to that point quite quickly. Um, but also a beginner or a, a novice in a new sport will find a certain session will be harder um, if there's from a, like a mental component. Um, if it's a, a high interval session, though, they might find that they have to Mentally, they're like, this is really, really hard, but their heart rate's not, they're not working hard enough from a skill point of view. Um, so I guess an example would be like around running up a hill. Um, if your legs aren't strong enough to run up that hill as fast as you're supposed to be going, then you're going to feel like you're trying to run as hard as you can, but your heart rate's not actually responding because you're not physically putting out the, the effort. So you're going to have a lower heart rate, but you're going to feel like you're working harder. Um, I, without knowing knowing what sort of athlete you're talking about or whether they are a beginner, um, I would suggest to, to err on that side of caution from the overtraining aspect first. Um, whether you can measure um, like HRV um, to get a bit of a snapshot as to how recovered they are, um, whether you need to give them a couple of days of some sort of recovery modality, maybe they go swimming if they're not in the pool, um, some sort of uh, weightless exercise, so to speak, aqua jogging, light walking, um, a couple of sleep-ins, some really good nutrition for a few days, and just see if that is enough to, to spark them out of it. Um, but yeah, it's certainly not just specific to fit people or athletes. Um, anybody can be overtrained, um, and beginners will be overtrained a lot easier than an athlete can be. Mm, that's a good point. I think the, the key thing to think about here as well is what... Uh, one, what is their heart rate? And two, what is their threshold heart rate? Because some people will naturally have a lower heart rate than other people. And so let's say that you do a field test, as we talked about uh, in the first episode of this heart rate uh, training zone series, and we find that it's quite low. Let's say, um, for an example, it's 130 to their field test heart rate. Then if you're out doing, um, you know, different zoned training, they don't actually say what it is here, then 
the heart rate's going to be low if you just looked at the heart rate monitor and it says 120 beats a minute. You think, well, that's kind of low. But then actually relatively to their functional threshold heart rate, is they're actually working quite hard. It's only 10 beats off, you know, that, that threshold area. So there's, there's a number of reasons why people might have a low heart rate. Uh, medications is one of them. So the first thing I check is, are they on any medications that adjust or change their heart rate? Because if they are, then no matter how hard you push them, their heart rate's always going to be relatively low. And that's a really important thing to know. The other thing is, is that depending on who they are, they, you need to think about what their life is like outside of their training or their exercise. Because stress, whether it be work stress, life stress, home stress, whatever it might be, exercise stress, they affect the body in a similar way. So even though you might not be overtraining them uh, because you know you do two sessions a week with them and they've had, they've had ample recovery by the time they've come back to you, the stress that they're experiencing outside of uh, the training that you're doing has an influence on their body as well. The same stress hormones are released whether you're exercising, whether you've had a hard day at the office or the kids have been up since three o'clock in the morning. You're going to get adrenaline, noradrenaline and cortisol released in the body, all which have an effect on the whole body. Uh, and that's the same body that that person's coming to you with to do whatever exercise you're doing. So definitely look at that um, as, a, as a potential reason why they are overtrained but you're not even training that hard potentially so a number of different things that could be happening are they overtrained it's a tough one if we don't know the full details i guess but there is our opinion so final question um we have a gentleman i believe but that is an assumption i'm not sure i should make that he wants some advice on training this year specifically for the UK Masters Championship in early May. Um, now, we are talking about kayaking here, and he's got a target of a four-minute 1,000 metres. Um, and currently he's doing some strength training in the gym, mostly long, slow distance on the water, interspersed with some micro-intervals to maintain pure speed. Uh, his best 250s, in terms of 250 metres, around 62 seconds so far um, and he wants to know what he should be concentrating on to progress those intervals when he starts his sort of specific training about eight weeks out from the event um, his times so far are not in ideal conditions cold weather and cold shallow water um, but he looks forward to hearing from your expertise mr graham around kayaking mate Early May, that's like in like about a month. So, mate, I'm really sorry that I'm just getting to this question now. I it like was hidden away from me somewhere. I think it was maybe on Facebook Messenger, uh, in the messages where it's kind of where it doesn't come up on the main thing, but it's hidden away in like pending or some obscure little thing there. And I, I found that and I was like, shit, I better I better do this, even though it's completely probably almost irrelevant now. So very sorry. Um, and here we go. So four minutes is as a period of time in any sport. If you're, if you're race, if your race lasts about that four minute mark, it's very, very aerobic, but it's very, very anaerobic as well. It's kind of one of those things that, you think it's short enough so you go out really, really hard, but then you get about a quarter of the way through it and think, far out, it's still a long way to go and I've got to get through it on my aerobic energy because I've tapped out my anaerobic energy system already. So I think this is one of the hardest uh, like durations for a race, hands down. That's sort of very aerobic and highly anaerobic as well. So what are we going to do in terms of training? Well, there's kind of a couple of different types of intervals we want to be doing here. We want to be doing some anaerobic threshold intervals. So around that four minute, four to eight minutes. So really developing that a body's ability to generate uh, and tolerate lactate is really key. 
So why would you train longer than you know your planned duration? Well, you want to go longer so that you can develop the capacity of that system or the endurance of it. And then when you come to uh, shorten your intervals down, hopefully uh, your body's able to generate and tolerate a little bit more lactate um, and, and deal with it. So we want to do some longer intervals to develop that anaerobic uh, metabolic system. And we also want to do some shorter, and what are, this is going to be extremely confusing for people, but aerobic intervals that target your VO2 max. All right, so the reason that they're aerobic is that we aren't interested in what's happening with the lactate in the body. We want to keep that at a minimum. That's what makes it anaerobic because it's maximizing the anaerobic energy system. When it comes to our aerobic intervals, we want to maximize the oxygen delivery, which is when we shorten the intervals down somewhere between one and three minutes somewhere in there with a shorter maximal intensity uh, that all focus on maximizing your VO2 max. And then the recovery for those, if we remember back to when we talked about zone five, they want to be at least one to one. So if you do a two minute interval, you're taking two minutes of recovery. And that helps bring uh, that lactate down so that it doesn't interfere with that aerobic energy um, maximization that we're trying to do with these intervals. Now, the other type of interval that we would be looking at doing there would be some neuromuscular type uh, intervals. Neuromuscular slash our PCR system, our phosphocreatine, which we talked about way back uh, in our energy system um, podcast. Now, the idea there is to develop that explosive power, which is often neuromuscular, and that short power type energy system, which is obviously really important for our starts. If you, depending on what your cadence are and how you're able to hold your cadence, you may want to look at some high cadence work as well to develop that, ability, that body's ability to fire the neuromuscular system fast enough to turn that paddle over. Now, how much of each of these that you would do, those different types of intervals, would depend on where your strengths and where your weaknesses are. And this would be where a coach could come in handy to say that, you know, we need to work on this aspect or we need to work on this aspect. Having a look at how you perform throughout um, the distance or the race distance is kind of uh, a bit of an eye-opener for that as well. Are you slow at getting off the line at the start? If you're slow at getting off the line at the start, you might want to do some more of that explosive neuromuscular type intervals where you're literally doing you know, five to 10 second power bursts um, from a standing start where you're working on getting that boat up to speed. Do you fall to pieces at the end of the race? If you're falling to pieces at the end of the race, potentially more of a longer anaerobic type intervals, those sort of six to eight minute efforts, really driving that lactate up through the roof. Um, or in, con in uh, conjunction with that is doing some more uh, aerobic miles to develop just that general aerobic uh, capacity. If you have already done a good base phase, which it sounds like you have, that shouldn't be a problem and you should just be focusing more on that anaerobic uh, the anaerobic focus with those intervals. So because it's such an aerobic event, but also heavily anaerobic, that mixture of interval, again, is really, really important. And exactly how much of each you would do would depend on, like I said, your strengths, your weaknesses, where you think you could potentially make up time uh, for the race. Massive question. Uh, I'd love to put a little bit more time and effort into answering it, um, but it's almost like a, here's my problem, can you write me a training program to help? Um, and we can't really do that over the podcast, but if there's anything else that I can help with around that question, let me know. I realize May is just, or early May, is, is literally just around the corner. So if there's anything we can do over the next three weeks to get you there, um, let us know. 
or alternatively, let me know what you have been doing because hopefully your training is on track and you are feeling good um, for the UK Masters Championships that is looming. Uh, it would be interesting to know how you got on. Um, it's always good to hear from our listeners out there. So we're going to wrap it up there. Thanks for tuning in. And if you've got any questions, whether that be about our training zones or training, nutrition, racing in general, send them on through, whether that be over at Facebook, on Instagram, at the website, or ideally as a voice question over at exponentialperformancecoaching.com slash ask. Done. Mate, thanks for listening. If you would like to support this podcast and see it continue into the future, you can do so in a number of ways. Firstly, make sure you subscribe to this channel on whatever platform you are listening. Like and share the podcast on social media to help spread the word. If you're feeling really generous, head over and leave a review and a rating over on iTunes. This helps spread the word and develop the podcast. Make sure you check out the range of t-shirts we have over at the Exponential Performance Podcast store. And this includes the Harden Up t-shirts. All the profits from these will go straight back into the podcast directly to help the production of it. All of this will help the podcast continue long into the future so we can keep bringing you the information you need to train hard, but most importantly, train smart. We'll talk to you next week.